regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. Oh my gosh, we have so much to talk about. We are going to talk about uh, the elections in Virginia and New Jersey. Uh, But before we get to that, because I've already written a couple of pieces at Bearing Arms, um, we got to talk about what's going on in the Supreme Court today. Oral arguments in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin taking place on Wednesday morning. Uh, I had the chance to listen to the vast majority of the uh, oral arguments, but I wanted to get this show up and out. So uh, I I am uh, actually recording this as the uh, plaintiffs in this case are offering their uh, rebuttal. So the way the oral arguments work, uh, Paul Clement, who's former Solicitor General, he is the attorney representing the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association and two of its individual members uh, in their case against New York State. Uh, he went first, was grilled for almost an hour by the uh, nine justices. We'll get into some of the questions that were asked. And then the uh, Solicitor General of the uh, state of New York uh, also had the uh, chance to weigh in in defending uh, New York's law. Um And then the Solicitor General of the United States, who is also uh, representing the Biden administration, and they're siding with the state of New York, they had the chance uh, to weigh in as well. So I have to say, after listening to the oral arguments, I feel pretty good that um, we're going to get a good decision out of the Supreme Court. I mean, that's the bottom line. Uh, I, I did not hear... Anything that uh, uh, terribly uh, concerned me. But I do think it's important to uh, point out what exactly it is that the plaintiffs are asking for here. They're not asking that the Supreme Court toss out every uh, carry law across the country. They're not asking that the uh, Supreme Court impose constitutional carry on the state of New York. In fact, uh, Paul Clement was asked very specifically, so would you be satisfied with a shall issue Regime, in other words, you meet the, uh, the the training requirements, you pass a background check, you get your license. He said, "Yeah, that that's what we're asking for. We're not asking to go any further than that." But there are basically three, maybe four issues that the court was taking a look at, and the court seemed very interested in today. Uh, the first, obviously, whether or not the right to carry is being infringed by New York's permitting scheme. And while the court had limited the question specifically to the case of Mr. Nash and Mr. Koch, the two named plaintiffs who had applied for and were denied an unrestricted carry permit, uh, the justices were uh, uh, clearly interested in expanding the scope of this argument outside of these two cases. Justice Breyer, for instance, uh, uh, talked about uh, New York City quite a bit, even though uh, neither of these plaintiffs live in New York City. And whether or not, uh, you know, New York University, for instance, could uh, could ban guns from uh, its campus, would that be considered a sensitive place? Uh, which is one of the arguments that the state of New York made from the, uh, well, not from the get-go. Actually, they kind of switched their argument midstream. But the, the argument that the New York state is making now is that this case is about whether or not you have the right to carry a gun anywhere at all times for any purpose, which is not what the case is about. And Paul Clement was uh, very careful to steer this uh, line of questioning back to the fundamental question, which is whether or not the average citizen in New York or any other state can be denied a constitutional right because they haven't demonstrated a good enough reason to satisfy the state. Because in New York, it's my right is not enough of a reason. In fact, uh, the Solicitor General for the state of New York was even asked at one point by Justice Breyer 
Okay, so you've got a uh, a guy who lives in New York City, works in New York City. Maybe he's a doorman. Maybe he, you know, is a custodian. But he 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 works uh, long hours. He gets off late at night. He uh, has to take the subway. Maybe he's got to take a bus uh, home. He lives in a bad neighborhood. He's worried about being mugged. You're saying that that person would ordinarily not get a permit to carry because they haven't articulated some sort of special need to do so. And the Solicitor General, Barbara Underwood, agreed. Said, yeah, that's basically right. Uh, and, and she pointed out, too, I mean, look, you're talking about somebody who's riding the subway. You're talking about somebody who's riding the public bus. Allowing them to, 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 to carry a firearm, by my goodness gracious, that just makes things more dangerous for everybody, including the armed citizen or a potential criminal. Uh, so you've got the basic argument of, okay, well, are we talking about a right or are we talking about a privilege here? And how much can we restrict, how much can the state of New York restrict that right if indeed we are talking about a right, which clearly I think we are. Uh, then there was the issue of the standard of review. What, 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 what legal standards should the Supreme Court use to decide this case? Should they use the history, text, and tradition? Should they use strict scrutiny? Should they use intermediate scrutiny? Uh, Justice Kavanaugh seemed very uninterested in adopting either an intermediate scrutiny standard for Second Amendment cases or even a strict standard scrutiny, a strict scrutiny standard. Uh, as he said, you know, you're, you're, you're running the risk of dealing with a, uh, a balancing test uh, in all of these cases here where, uh, you know, the lower courts can say, well, you know, yes, your right is being infringed, but we got to balance that infringement uh, on the public safety benefit that the state or a city uh, claims to receive from having these gun control laws in the books. Uh, Kevin, I seem to think that uh, the history text and tradition test was the right standard of review. So, again, that's one of nine justices. But you've got the issue of the right to carry. You've got the issue of what's the standard of review. As I mentioned, you've also got this issue of uh, the, the sensitive places argument, which New York brought up uh, in its briefs and appeared to be a, a question of uh, a great interest. I mean, the conservative wing of the court peppered Paul Clement with questions about the standard of review. Uh, excuse me, about sensitive places. Well, you know, could, 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 could this be considered a sensitive place? Could that be considered a sensitive place? And Paul Clement reminded the justices, look, you don't have to deal with that issue. Despite the fact that New York wants to muddy the waters here and say that this case is about the right to carry any gun anywhere at any time, it's really not. It's about whether or not the average citizen can obtain a permit to carry. That's what this case is all about. It's not about where they can carry. It's about who can carry. Now, there might very well be some follow-up litigation surrounding uh, the issue of sensitive places, but that's not the fundamental question before the court today. So I want to uh, just highlight a couple of, I got to thank my friend Stephen Gatowski of the uh, Reload for uh, uh, live tweeting the oral arguments and I want to highlight a couple of the uh, points that some of the justices made. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, for instance, said the core problem is with the discretion given to government officials to determine who can and who can't exercise a constitutional right. Paul Clement agreed with that, but added, it's not just the subjective nature of this permitting process. For instance, in Rensselaer County, we talked with Robert Knox, who's one of the uh, uh, plaintiffs in this case, and he described the process of applying in Rensselaer County where he lives. And there are about six judges who get randomly assigned, uh, you know, the applications when somebody says, I'd like to be able to carry a firearm. 
And according to Robert, the majority of judges in Rensselaer County who hear these cases recognize self-defense as a valid reason, right? You, I want to be able to carry because I want to be able to protect myself. That's fine and dandy. Here's your unrestricted permit. But not every judge feels that way. And if you're unlucky enough to get a judge who says, well, I don't think anybody has the right to carry, you're hosed. There's nothing that you can do. So there is that subjective nature, which Clement uh, agreed with Kavanaugh, but he also said there's the the atypical requirement. You have to, not only are you having to deal with a, a judge or a sheriff who may have their own opinions about who should be able to carry a firearm for self-defense, but under New York statute, you have to prove that you are special, that you are different than the average citizen, because New York law says, in essence, you must have some sort of special circumstance in order to recognize your right to bear arms. That's not how rights work. And uh, Paul Clement pointed that out to the justices. Uh, Justice Sam Alito took issue with the defense's description of an early 19th century North Carolina statute, accusing them of not being completely upfront with the court by cutting out a key descriptor included in the statute. Yeah, that's uh, pretty interesting because they're arguing that the, the history and the text and tradition of the right to bear arms in this country allows for the types of restrictions that New York has in place, that these, you know, are, are in line with uh, other restrictions on the right to carry that we have seen throughout the centuries. But they misrepresented one of these statutes that they're using uh, in their evidence, which, again, not good for the state of New York. But I, I think the state of New York ultimately is hindered by the fact that they have a losing argument. They are trying to argue that a right found in the Bill of Rights, it's right there, right of the people, to keep and to bear, is not really a right at all. And it shouldn't be treated as a right. It should be treated as a privilege to be doled out by the state. Now, again, that's their position. That's really the only position that they could take in defending their law, but it's not a good argument. Uh, let's see, some of the other uh, comments from the uh, justices here. Chief Justice Roberts. Question why somebody should need a license that confirms a special need to exercise a constitutional right. He says we wouldn't allow that for the First Amendment. You're right. By the way, again, I, I don't think you can necessarily judge how any of these justices are going to rule based on their questions and oral arguments. But if you were going to assume that, um, then I think you'd have to assume that Chief Justice Roberts is going to be in the majority on this case. That we are probably looking at a 6-3 decision as opposed to a 5-4 decision. Uh, Roberts seemed to get it. He, he, he seemed to get the fact that you can't treat the Second Amendment as if it is a disfavored right or as if it is a second-class right just because you think guns are icky or you think that gun ownership automatically leads to more crime. You may believe that, but that doesn't give you the justification or the legal rationale to treat the right to keep and bear arms as if it is an afterthought. Uh, and again, I think Justice Roberts got it. There was also, because there was a lot of questions about the history, text, and tradition of the right to bear arms, a lot of questions about the history of New York's law, the Sullivan Act, which was put in place in 1911. And there's plenty of contemporaneous evidence that the reason for the Sullivan Act, for the May issue uh, permitting scheme that's in place in New York is to was was to, at the time, deprive immigrants, deprive racial minorities, from exercising their right to bear arms because only the you know the right sort of folks should have the right to carry a firearm in self defense. 
Justice Alito actually posed this question to the U.S. Solicitor General. He asked if the anti-Italian, anti-Union, and anti-Black sentiments during the enactment of New York's concealed carry law played a role in its adoption. And the uh, U.S. Solicitor General said those attitudes existed, but is not convinced that it motivated the law. Yeah. This country, remember, this country, systematic racism, inherent racism, except when it comes to the gun control laws that have been put in place during the Jim Crow era, during a time period in which there was a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. No, no. Those laws were completely racially neutral. Sure. Sure. Uh, finally, Justice Sotomayor asked what the limits of government restrictions on gun possession outside the home are. And uh, Biden's Solicitor General did not want to give specific restrictions, pointing again to historical gun laws, which they view as expansive as a guide. In other words, uh, you know, look, we've had these local ordinances uh, on the books. Uh, therefore, basically, you know, localities, they can do whatever they want when it comes to uh, uh, setting limits on the right to keep in arms. There's really no way for a locality to infringe on somebody's right to keep their arms because, you know, we, we, we just, we've had local gun laws on the books for hundreds of years. Again, not a very convincing argument uh, on the part of the uh, U.S. Solicitor General. Uh, Justice Thomas asked some questions of uh, Barbara Underwood, the New York Solicitor General, and said, your case seems to rely on the density of, of population. Basically, your, your argument is that if you live in a place like New York City, your right to bear arms should be far more restricted than if you live in, you know, a, a rural village in upstate New York. Um, and Thomas wondered, how rural does this area have to be, in your mind, before these restrictions are relaxed? And Barbara would say, I, I couldn't really tell you. There's no hard and fast answer. But she did acknowledge that licenses are more readily available in rural New York than they are in densely populated metropolitan areas. She said, she actually called it a virtue. I don't think it's a virtue. Because again, what other right do we treat that way? Well, you have a First Amendment right to speak your mind as long as you live, you know, uh, on your own farm outside of Utica. But if you travel into the Big Apple, by God, there are millions of people. Somebody might get offended. No, you don't have a First Amendment right. Or, you know, you've got a Fourth Amendment right to be secure in your person and property, as long as you live in a little burg somewhere. But I tell you what, you're walking down the streets of Manhattan, we, we, we have the power and the authority to stop you and search you, pat you down, make sure that you don't have anything uh, illegal or untoward on your person. Because we've, we're in a city of 8 million people. Think you should just be allowed to walk down the street unmolested by the state. We would not accept that. So why would we accept that standard when it comes to our right to keep and bear arms. Justice uh, Roberts followed up on that line of questioning from Justice Thomas. And he said, look, Heller said the core purpose of the Second Amendment is self-defense. You are undeniably making it more difficult to exercise the right to bear arms in self-defense in more populated areas. But isn't the need for self-defense more acute in places where people actually live? Aren't you, uh, you know, at a greater risk of becoming the victim of violent crime in a big city? as opposed to at a campsite in the country somewhere? Barbara Underwood said, well, no, not necessarily. To which uh, Chief Justice Roberts got off what I think was the line of the entire oral arguments. And it, it, it may ultimately be one of those things like, well, this is where the case actually hinged. Because Chief Justice Roberts' response was, how many muggings take place in the forest? 
if you believe, as the state of New York does, that the right to bear arms is satisfied by allowing somebody like Robert Koch to carry a firearm while he's hunting, or while he's fishing, or while he's camping in the middle of the woods, far away from any other human being, and that satisfies his right to self-defense, but he can't carry, as he's walking through uh, a downtown Troy, New York, he can't carry on his way to and from work, he can't carry if he has to head out in the middle of the night to help a friend change a tire, then how on earth are you satisfying his right to bear arms in self-defense? And Barbara Underwood really didn't have an answer. She kind of hemmed and hawed and then went back to this atypical standard that uh, Paul Clement had mentioned. You, you know, again, you have to show that you're an atypical citizen in order to possibly obtain a, uh, a permit to carry. She said, I, it's not correct to characterize the risk as atypical. But rather, it must be a threat that is specific to the person. You can't just say, I'm afraid because I live in a bad neighborhood, or I'm afraid that I might be the victim of a mugging based on facts that aren't specific to you. And so Robert's drilled down a little bit. He's all right, well, let's, let's get specific. What about if you live in New York and there's some madman running around shooting people like Son of Sam? If you were a New Yorker and there's, you know, somebody like the Son of Sam out there and you say, you know, there's been an attack in my neighborhood uh, or in my borough, I, I'm, I'm terrified, I want to be able to protect myself, is that a good enough reason to get a carry license? And Barbara Underwood, the Solicitor General for the State of New York, said no. She said it would have to be brought home to you in particular. It would have to be somebody got attacked in, in your parking lot or in your apartment building rather than it's happening to, uh, in, in the world at large, right? Um, another interesting uh, 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 back and forth between Barbara Underwood came when Justice Breyer uh, quizzed her. Actually, I, I mentioned this, Justice Breyer talking about uh, that scenario of uh, the, the individual who you know, lives and works in New York City, would like to be able to, uh, to carry because they live in a bad neighborhood. I was really interested in the fact that Breyer brought this up because I don't think that Breyer is going to go along uh, with overturning New York's May issue laws. If, in fact, that is what the court decides to do. I, I don't think that Breyer's going to join that opinion. But he actually did have some pointed questions for the Solicitor General about, again, the average person, somebody who's not well-connected, they're not rich and famous, they're not powerful, but just the average person being able to protect themselves and whether or not this double standard exists. And I believe it certainly does uh, under New York law. So it was a uh, long and detailed uh, oral argument between, again, uh, Paul Clement, Barbara Underwood, the uh, U.S. Solicitor General, the nine justices of the Supreme Court. I think the uh, justices asked some probing questions. Um, but my takeaway after listening to the oral argument is that a majority of the justices seem to understand what's at stake here. And it's not that Paul Clement... And the plaintiffs are asking to overturn every New York gun law, even though they might want to see every New York gun law overturned. They're not asking for the Supreme Court to throw out, uh, you know, 42 states shall issue laws and adopt a, a nationwide constitutional carry standard, as much as we might like to see that. The question before the court is, is really simple, no matter how complicated the state of New York or the Biden administration wants to make it. The Second Amendment says that we have the right to both keep and bear arms. The Supreme Court has said that the core purpose of the Second Amendment is self-defense inside the home. But in Heller, they did acknowledge 
that uh, that right to carry outside of the home it, it does exist. Because Justice Scalia talked about how that, you know, that well, that look, that, that right might not apply to uh, carrying in sensitive places. But Justice Scalia didn't say anything about that right not applying outside of the home at all. And so the question really is, can a state like New York or California or Massachusetts or New Jersey or Maryland or any of the other uh, uh, eight may issue states out there, can they deny the average citizen who has no special need to carry a firearm, who, who, who cannot point to any specific threat against his or her life, can states still deprive those individuals of the right to bear arms in self-defense outside of their home? It's not about time, manner, place restrictions. It's not about sensitive places. Again, those issues may get litigated in the future. But the court doesn't have to answer those questions right now. What the court does have to decide is whether or not the right to bear arms is actually a meaningful part of the Second Amendment or whether states can decide that it's optional. So we're going to talk more about this on tomorrow's program. We're going to bring in some uh, legal eagles because I want to get uh, some lawyerly perspectives to the oral arguments. But as I mentioned, I had to do this show as the oral arguments were wrapping up. So it was difficult to, uh, to get those uh, experts to uh, peel themselves away from the oral arguments. But we are going to have a follow-up on tomorrow's Cam and Company. Uh, and uh, before we run out of time, I do just want to mention haha, uh, the election news in Virginia last night because I am so excited about this. You know, we wrote and we talked about this on yesterday's program. Uh, the the Second Amendment sanctuary movement, and were guns the hidden issue in the Virginia election? Because Terry McAuliffe, while on his campaign website, is talking about wanting to ban guns and magazines, didn't bring it up on the campaign trail. Glenn Youngkin uh, talked about supporting the Second Amendment, but you know didn't make that a focus of his campaign. Didn't seek out the NRA's endorsement. Didn't seek out the Virginia Citizens Defense League endorsement. I, and we talked about, again, the strategic reasons, I think, for both of those campaigns to sort of ignore the issue because they were afraid of energizing their opponents. But what we saw last night across the Commonwealth of Virginia was that those Second Amendment sanctuaries, those counties, those towns, those localities that after the Democrats took complete control of the state government of Virginia in 2019 and immediately started uh, uh, embracing their own gun ban agenda. The, the dozens of counties and communities and towns across the state that adopted segment of sanctuary measures after hundreds and thousands of residents showed up at county supervisors meetings, city council meetings, those gun owners did not fade away or become apathetic just because the, the wave of these Second Amendment sanctuaries subsided once the vast majority of the state had adopted these measures. No, no, they turned out in force last night. Not only was the uh, margin of victory for Glenn Youngkin larger in these rural areas than what we saw four years ago when uh, Ed Gillespie ran against Ralph Northam, but the margins were better and there was increased turnout. So, for example, uh, Prince Edward County, which is where Farmville, Virginia is located, where I'm coming uh, from uh, today. Four years ago, Ralph Northam won Prince Edward County by about four percentage points. 
This time around, Glenn Youngkin won Prince Edward County by about 10 points. Uh, depending on what part of the state, what part of the county you're looking at, I mean, there was no part of the state where Democrats did better than they did four years ago. It's just a matter of how much worse they did compared to four years ago. And in Northern Virginia, uh, you know, Democrats underperformed by anywhere from two to seven or eight points, which was substantial. But again, you get out of the rural areas, Democrats underperformed by 10, 12, 15, even close to 20 points compared to four years ago. And I got to tell you, you know, a lot of folks, look, critical race theory was an issue. Parental control uh, over our schools was an issue, even in the rural areas. But I would argue that that, that 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 was not actually the biggest issue in rural areas because, you know, look, where I live, county of about 18,000 people, really small. Uh, we know our school board members. We shop with them. We go to church with them. We hang out with them on the weekends. They're just, they're a part of the community. I mean, it's, it's a small enough place that everybody knows everybody else. So I don't think that losing control of our local school board was as much of an issue in rural Virginia as it was losing our right to keep and bear arms. Because if you live in a rural county, again, I think that you, you feel like you've got more control over your local government. It's what's going on in the state legislature that's concerning to you. So what's going on in Washington, D.C. that maybe makes you feel powerless. So I, I truly do believe that in rural Virginia, the Democrats' push for gun control actually played more of a role in this election than critical race theory or uh, uh, schools in rural Virginia. Now, you get into the northern Virginia suburbs, you get into Fairfax County, you get into Loudoun County, I think that calculus changes. Certainly, there are still a lot of gun owners up there. But I think the bigger issue in, uh, in Northern Virginia was the schools. I just think that you get outside of the Beltway and you get outside of, uh, you know, the Washington, D.C. sprawl. And the issues, it's not, that, it's not that those rural parents aren't concerned about the schools. But again, I think that they feel like they have more control over their local schools. It's, it's the lack of control over what the Democrats want to do to our right to keep and bear arms that I really believe motivated uh, the rural vote to turn out in force. And again, we saw Glenn Youngkin win. We saw Winsome Sears win. A, a proud Second Amendment supporter actually campaigned, uh, showing off her AR-15 rifle. First black female lieutenant governor in the state of Virginia. I've had the opportunity to interview uh, Winsome Sears, hoping to have her back on the program again very soon. Very, very cool lady. Uh, and Jason Miaras, uh, the next attorney general for the Commonwealth of Virginia, defeating uh, anti-gun AG Mark Herring. That's absolutely huge because Mark Herring has signed on to every pro-gun control brief that you can imagine uh, over the last few years. He, he, he signed on in defense of New York's carry laws, as a matter of fact, despite the fact that Virginia is a shall-issue state and no license is needed to openly carry a firearm. Mark Herring decided to defend New York's laws instead of the Commonwealth of Virginia's laws. We're not going to have an attorney general that will do that over the next four years because we're going to have an attorney general that will stand up and defend the right to keep and bear arms in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That alone is going to be a huge sea change. But uh, I think just as important as the statewide election victories, the fact that Republicans took back control of the House of Delegates. They picked up at least six seats 
possibly seven. There's a race out in Virginia Beach that's probably going to go to a recount. Uh, they needed to get five to flip the House of Delegates. So they're going to have at least a one-vote majority, maybe a two-vote majority uh, in the House of Delegates. And that not only is going to serve as a uh, an impenetrable roadblock uh, for gun control bills coming out of the Senate, but I, I think it gets us a lot closer to being able to repeal some of these laws if we are able to continue to make progress and we're able to take back the state Senate in 2023. This was a hugely important night for gun owners in Virginia. Obviously, the New Jersey elections have shocked a lot of people. It may go to a recount. Phil Murphy probably going to pull out a win, but he won by 16 points four years ago. He's going to win maybe by a point, maybe two, depending on what the uh, mail-in ballots look like. The, Tuesday night was a rejection of the anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment, anti-civil rights attitudes and ideology that are found uh, uh, far too uh, frequently on the left in both the state of New Jersey uh, and the state of Virginia. I think gun owners made a huge impact in these elections. And I am so proud and so grateful for all of my fellow Virginians who went out and voted, who didn't buy into the idea that uh, this state was lost forever. I, I, listen, I, I, I was concerned. My wife and I had had some conversations about, look, you know, if Terry McAuliffe wins. Can we really stay here? I mean, our kids are going to graduate from high school this year, youngest. So we'll be, you know, sort of empty nesters. We don't need to be here. My wife loves her oncologist. That would probably be the, the, the primary reason we would have stayed had Terry McAuliffe won. Because the uh, conditions were as favorable as we will see for a Republican victory in Virginia. And we got that Republican victory, which reassures me that uh, this state is not lost. It is not a, a deep blue state, at least not always. And we do have the ability uh, to, uh, to win these elections in these battleground states and to ensure that the threats to our right to keep and bear arms can be stopped in their tracks. And that's exactly what Virginia gun owners did last night. So, again, congratulations to uh, all of the other Virginia gun owners out there. Uh, we did it. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you at the state capitol for the uh, next Lobby Day rally in a couple of months. I think we're going to celebrate. It's going to be a good day. And then after that, hopefully we'll get a, a great decision from the Supreme Court as well when it comes to the right to carry. So all in all, I got to say, not a bad Wednesday. I'm feeling pretty good. And I'm glad that you were part of the program today. We will be back tomorrow, as I mentioned, with more of the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. We'll also get back to our armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, our recidivist report as well. But until then, be well, be safe, be free.